Hello, Brightwood College Ministry. It's good to be with you, though not in person. I thank you for being uh, flexible with me and allowing me to uh, just record you this lesson on video uh, for the evening. Uh, we're getting to uh, enjoy this vacation house uh, down in Naples, Florida. Uh, belongs to uh, uh, my brother-in-law, and um, so we're getting to enjoy that for the week, and that just popped up, opportunity to come down here. And so I appreciate you guys being really gracious and patient with me. Thank you for the great response that uh, you guys have given to me every week um, as I've been teaching. Just the, the feedback has been fantastic. Uh, seeing how encouraged everyone has been uh, by what we've been going through. And, uh, and everything has just been really great for me and encouraging to me. And I hope that these lessons have been very helpful to you as well. Uh, so this is our final lesson. This will be our final week and our final lesson we're going to be talking about the emotion of fear. And so let me pray for us, uh, pray for myself, and then we'll uh, end the word and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you um, have chosen to speak to us, that you've chosen to guide us uh, by your word um, in all matters. Uh, intellectual, emotional, uh, volitional, you have chosen to guide us and to help us by your word. I pray that you would uh, help me to communicate clearly and that you would help uh, these ladies and gentlemen to uh, understand and to apply your word to their lives, that they might be transformed, that they might be changed and really experience the fear of the Lord as you have designed it. I ask these things through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. So like I said, tonight we're going to be talking about the emotion of fear. Uh, fear is probably the most primal of the emotions. We feel it. Um, it, it it's probably the first emotion that you feel when you are born. You are nice and warm and cozy inside your mother's womb and everything is great and, and dark and you don't even know what light is yet. And then all of a sudden you are pulled, you are thrust uh, from all the entire world as you knew it into this great expansive reality full of light and noise and somebody slaps you on the bottom and, <laughs> and you're just, it's terrifying. I've seen it three times now, and each time, you know, it's sweet, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. I'd love to see the birth of my daughters, but they are terrified when they come into the world. And it, it's great to be there for them, to be a great comfort to them. And that's uh, what you become to them very much throughout their lives. Um, so it's no surprise then that the most common command, the most commonly repeated command in the entire Bible is the command to fear not. Don't be afraid. And that command, it's so common, it's, it's repeated 365 times. This is, I'm not making that up. <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely true. 365 commands in the Bible, one for each day of the year, to don't be afraid. To, to, say, to say fear not, don't be afraid. And, I mean, that's easy to say as a command. Um... It's not easy to do. It's not an easy command to obey, to not be afraid, because we don't have direct control 
over our emotions. We control our emotions, like we've said all along, through our thinking. Through something happens out here, and we have to consider reality. We have to consider um, what we have to make an evaluation of that thing outside of us. And that evaluation is what leads to our emotional response. So you don't have direct control over your emotions, but you do have indirect control over them through the way that you think. So that is why every one of these commands, most, I, mean, I think most of these 365 commands, most of them are grounded in a statement, a very often repeated statement that's often connected to the command to fear not. And that command, that, that grounding statement is, for I am with you, or for I am your God, I will care for you. Isaiah 41.10 is my favorite example. When my daughters are afraid at night, something happens, nightmare, they come in. When we go to tuck them back into bed, we repeat uh, Isaiah 41.10 to them over and over, and I have them repeat it back to me, and we pray through it. And, in, and Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So fear, the, the power to obey the command to fear not, is in, the, is in that grounding, is in your understanding that he is your God, that God is your God, that Yahweh is your God, that he is with you, and that he is committed to you. And if you understand that, then little things, it's like this. If, I, if a mountain lion, my favorite uh, illustrative tool, mountain lions, if a mountain lion were to, I'm just itching to run into a mountain lion one day when I'm out hiking or something, I don't know. Uh, so if a mountain lion were to charge out on the path, I'm out hiking, me and you, are, you and I, are, we're, a couple, bunch of us are out hiking and a mountain lion comes out onto the path and I turn around to you and I say, fear not, for I am with you. I, Chad, am with you. That's not very comforting, right? Mountain lion could tear me apart. <laughs> the, the mountain lion, I'm no match for the mountain lion. I can try. I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'll fight him. I'll wrestle him so you can run. But I'm not a match for him. But what if Superman swooped in and landed between us and the mountain lion and turned around and said, Hey, don't be afraid. I got this. And then he, you, would, you would suddenly be comforted the whole evaluation of the situation would change because Superman can punt that mountain lion into the stratosphere and you've got nothing to worry about. And that's kind of what's going on with these commands to fear not. God is swooping in and he is saying, I am your God. I am with you. All these things that you're afraid of, I'm in control of them. I'm the God who brought them into your life. Do you think I brought this into your life to destroy you? I'm your God. I'm here to support you. I will, I will help you. I will strengthen you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. So the whole, well, there's, this, there's this one big thrust of the whole Old Testament about that's trying to get us to not be afraid throughout the whole Bible. It kind of culminates in this idea in 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, there's this one, the Bible has this one idea on the one hand that, that fear is something to be avoided. Fear is not a good thing, you might say, on the one hand. But on the other hand, 
you've got Proverbs 117. The fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or 910, Proverbs 910. The fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So on the one hand, you've got all these banishments to fear. And on the other hand, you've got, you better be afraid. Fear the Lord. Or you, are you, fearing the Lord is the very beginning, the very foundation of knowing anything at all. See, we have this tendency to think that you begin knowing things in your head, in your intellect, and that's where it starts. But what the Bible is saying in Proverbs is the ABCs of knowing anything at all. Before you can learn to read the knowledge that's available to you in anything, you've got to learn the ABCs. And you don't cast them out when you begin to read. You use them. And the fear of the Lord is the ABCs of knowledge and wisdom. You need it to start learning anything, and you need it to continue to learn and know anything and to continue to grow and be wise. So the, the fear of the Lord is, how you, is the very foundation of knowledge and wisdom. It is the most fundamental description of Old Testament piety. How do you talk about your relationship with God in the Old Testament? The fear of the Lord. How do you, talk, how do you say that somebody knows right from wrong or that a community knows right from wrong? You say, well, they fear the Lord. But, so that's on the one hand. You're, on the one hand, it's fear seems to be a bad thing. On the other hand, it seems to be the most fundamental thing. So what's the difference? Some people have proposed something like, it's, well, it's just in the Old Testament, fear. Old Testament's all about fear, all about fear in the Lord. But then when you get to the New Testament, the fear of the Lord stuff is really just goes away. And there's no, there's no reason to fear the Lord. You know, 1 John 4, 18. But then there's a problem with that, and that is the actual text of the New Testament. Um, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, for instance, Paul says this. Since we have these promises, talking about the promises of the gospel, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So what is the completion of holiness? What's the goal of becoming holy? What's the purpose of sanctification according to Paul? The perfection of of the fear of the Lord. The whole goal of your sanctification and therefore the goal of your justification, the goal of your adoption, the goal of all of it, because your sanctification is what is leading from your, the beginning point of your justification, adoption, your faith in Christ to the ending point of your glorification. That is the string that attaches all of it. And what's the point of it? What's the end goal up here? The perfection of the fear of the Lord, of the fear of God. That it would have it could have that it would have its complete work. So that can't be what it is. Fear's got to be a good thing. There's got to be some way to parse to, to handle this tension, and that's what I hope to get at tonight. We're going to answer three questions, and we're going to get at this tension between uh, this kind, some kind of fear over here that we're not supposed to have, and this fear of the Lord that is very fundamental to the way that we relate to God. So we're going to talk. We're going to answer three questions. What is fear itself as an emotion? Two, what are we supposed to be afraid of? What's the proper object of our fear? And then three, how do we manage fear? How does the knowledge of what fear is and what its proper object ought to be, how do we manage it? How do we handle fear? So first, what is fear? 
in an, and this is the shortest point, uh, in a, in a, the way to sum it up, fear is the emotional response to things beyond our control. Fear is how you respond to seeing something that you cannot control. Fear is what you feel when you uh, look, in, when a hurricane is coming. Fear is what you feel when you see a tornado touchdown, when the mountain lion comes on the path, when a bear comes out of the woods. Fear is what you feel because you know that all these things could destroy you and there's nothing you can do to stop them. Fear is the emotional response to things beyond our control. And if there is one being in this universe who is so far beyond our control, it is the Lord. Like, think about this. You're afraid of a bear. You're afraid of a lion. You're afraid of uh, a tiger. You know, you're afraid of the Wizard of Oz. Um, you're, afraid, <laughs> you're afraid of the Wicked Witch of the West. Whatever it is, you're afraid of these things. And all of these things you can control to some degree. There's only one being in the universe that you have absolutely no control over. Absolutely no control at all. And that is God himself. And that's, that, can, that can be terrifying. It makes me think about uh, in um, C.S. Lewis in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia when, the, when uh, Beaver is, Mr. Beaver is telling Susan and, uh, and Lucy about... Uh, about Aslan and he says and, and Lucy asks well is he uh, is he kind or is, it, or is he safe that's it is he safe and Beaver laughs and says don't be ridiculous he's a lion of course he's not safe but he's good you know you never lose the fear of Aslan he's always dangerous he's always a lion he's always going to do what he's going to do but you can trust that he's good. And those two things don't have to be in conflict with each other. So what is fear? It's the emotional response to things beyond our control, which then starts to make sense that fear is the emotional response to the Lord. He's beyond our control. Isaiah 8, 11 through 13 says this, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. What the Lord is saying here is, there, it, Judah was in a situation where all these different nations were allied against them. And they're surrounded on every side by enemies who are going to try to destroy them. And they, they, their ability to negotiate peace is just beyond them. And so what happens is all the political intrigue and all the people start to talk about conspiracies and they start to pitch these conspiracy theories. Because conspiracy theories allow us to think that somebody is in control of these events that I can control, that I could have some effect on them. I could reach in and take control of this situation. It makes the uncontrollable feel controllable. And so we try to control our fear in this way. And the Lord turns to Isaiah and says, tell this people there is not to not be afraid of what they're, what, what they're afraid of. You don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. There is not a conspiracy 
going on here. He says there, you know, he basically says there is a divine conspiracy. There is a grand conspirator who is beyond their control, but it's not the people they think it is. It is me. I'm the one. The Lord is the one orchestrating events and and, and turning these nations against each other and and bringing about my own purposes. And yes, so don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of me. I'm the one in control here. And so that's that's what fear is. It's emotional response to things beyond our control. Second. What should we fear and what shouldn't we fear? I think I've probably proven the case a little bit already that we should fear the Lord. We should have this emotional response to him. We should recognize how beyond our control he is. And our emotional response to that should be to tremble. You cannot control him. He's not a tame lion. And you should tremble at that. So... Why, why is it, why is fear the emotion that God says he should elicit in us? Why not just, why not joy? <laughs> why, why don't we describe the ultimate emotion of piety in the Old Testament as the joy of the Lord? Why fear? It seems so antithetical. It seems so... Uh, it butts it butt heads with it can't coexist in our way of thinking it can't coexist with things like happiness and delight but leave, but look at this isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 3 these verses are describing jesus christ they're describing the branch from the root of jesse that will sprout and it says this about him there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the lord the spirit of yahweh shall rest upon him it'll be his natural habitat the spirit of Yahweh will sit on him the way that a bird sits in a nest, the way that you live in a house. It's the natural habitat for the spirit of the Lord is this branch. So this is all natural. This is everything that's going on in this passage is naturally the existence of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is what's going on in him. The spirit will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. What's the beginning of wisdom and understanding? You see, uh, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The spirit of God is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And this is what it says about Jesus. This is what it says about Jesus as, as uh, this, this final line. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord shall be his delight. Now how do delight and fear go together? How do those two things coexist? In our modern way of thinking, they can't. They're, they're, they're like, they're direct opposites. If I'm happy, it's because I'm not afraid. But, you know, they're like oil and water. They don't mix in our way of thinking. But biblically, fear and delight are harmonious realities. For the righteous branch, the fear of the Lord is his delight. It's the very apex of his joy and delight is the fear of the Lord. For us, that idea just doesn't compute, right? I mean, there are scenarios that where we would say that, that fear and delight can kind of coexist. Uh, you know, like roller coasters, skydiving, bungee jumping, you know, those sorts of things. Part of the delight of those things is the fear, the fear that you are leaping into something beyond your control. You are putting your hands when you jump out of a plane into, you're putting yourself into the hands of gravity and trusting in this parachute to save you. 
And there's something about hurling yourself into this uncontrollable abyss, into this uncontrollable situation. That thrill, it's delightful. Fear and delight can coexist in this way. But, you know, you know we, we think these things are fun. You know, why would somebody jump out of a perfectly good airplane for fun? Because there's something about the thrill of getting caught up in something beyond our control that we do actually find delightful. Psalm 2, uh, 10 and 11 says this, Now therefore, O kings, talking about these king, rebellious kings, rebellious nations um, that are um, rebelling against the Lord, and, he, and the warning at the end is, Therefore, O kings, because the Lord has established his, uh, his anointed one on Zion, he says, Therefore, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So these kings, in to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. Somehow this rejoicing and trembling can go together. When we encounter God, we encounter a being who cannot be controlled. But there's something about him that should blend trembling with joy. It shouldn't be so... Uh, one-sided. It's, it's not the same kind of fear uh, that you have when you encounter a bear. Greater amount of fear, one would say, but there's something about it that's more like the skydiving or more like something that uh, is a trembling kind of fear, trembling joy. So in our modern world, these two ideas, we've kind of driven them apart. We've tried to banish fear altogether from the way we think about reality, yet we're more afraid now than we have ever been in history. We grow more and more dominated by fear the more we refuse to acknowledge its true purpose. Its true purpose is to be locked onto God as our true ultimate fear, the being that is in ultimate control of everything. And when we move it away from that purpose, other fears start to seep in so that as time goes on and on and we try to banish fear, uh, we banish the fear of the Lord. We banish this great fear. All these little fears come in and start to crowd us in. We're more afraid and anxious today than people were a thousand years ago. And would you rather live a thousand years ago or would you rather live today? Would you rather live a thousand years ago, go back in time a thousand years, to a world with no antibiotics? So you stub your toe. There was a guy, um, I forget, a uh, big railroad um, tycoon. This wasn't even a thousand years ago, a couple hundred years ago. He uh, got angry at his safe because he forgot the combination, kicked his safe, cut his toe, and died of an infection because of his cut toe. Now, when was like, you've never heard of that happening to someone in your lifetime because of antibiotics. But a thousand years ago, there's no antibiotics. You get a cut toe, it gets infected, you're just dead. So you're afraid of cuts, you're afraid of scrapes, you're afraid of, you know, you would think that you would be terrified to do anything because you might get hurt and then it gets infected and you die. Now, so, you know, that's just, you know, there's no antibiotics, there's no water purification, there's no consistent way to purify your water so even the water can kill you. Um, would you like to go back to a time where if you wanted to have three grown children, you had to have six because of the infant mortality rate was... 50%, and 
and you as a woman, you, you know, you women in the audience here, uh, you would have a 50% chance of surviving. And you, imagine every time you go in to have a child, it's a coin toss whether you or the baby or both are coming out. You want to go back to that time? People lived, you would think if, if people, what was it? If you go back to the, that time, we have less and less to fear today. You'd have had food insecurity. If there wasn't enough rain in a given year, you'd have died of starvation, a famine, all these different things that could sweep by and they're completely out of your control and you would have just, entire villages and nations were wiped out by the flu. And you know what's striking? is you read the writings of these people who lived a thousand years ago, and they weren't nearly as anxious and afraid as we are today. We are anxious and afraid of everything because we have banished the great fear of the Lord from our lives and this, this left this gravitation. It's like we pulled the sun out of the center of the universe and of course everything goes rolling in and flying out into space. Everything flies apart. We need this great gravitational fear at the center of our universe to rotate all other things we might be afraid of around and control all those other fears. Or else everything just kind of is, is hidden. Everything sits. It's like the movie Jaws. As in the movie Jaws, uh, this is probably before your time. Y'all probably even haven't seen Jaws. I'm just old. Um, but in the movie Jaws, Steven Spielberg, the director, um, he, got, he would get praised after the movie came out because it was like, this was the scariest movie in the history of the world, the scariest movie we've ever seen. And he got all this praise for uh, making the most terrifying film they'd ever seen. And he thought that was hilarious because they had, the reason it was so scary, and this is what he realized, they had built, they had dropped, they had dropped a million dollars on this animatronic shark uh, that um, once they got it into the water, got waterlogged and looked ridiculous and, was, and, and wasn't scary at all. It was hilarious. It was funny. And so the way Steven Spielberg got around it was he just filmed silhouettes of sharks, outlines in the dark of a shark passing in front of a person. And you just saw a fin sticking out of the water so you couldn't see what was underneath. So instead of showing the shark, all you saw was the fin. All you saw was the shadow. And what happened was your, the, uh, the imagination of the audience filled in the terrifying size and ferocity of this beast because we couldn't see it. Because you couldn't see it, your brain made it more terrifying than it would have been if you would have seen the shark itself. And so our brains work like that. When, they, when there's all these lurking fears, in the absence of the fear of the Lord, everything in your life becomes jaws. Everything in your life becomes a lurking, nagging fear that could come in at any moment and destroy you. If you don't have a higher fear of the Lord to set those fears revolving around to be to somebody that you can trust to be in control of those things. And that's the thing a thousand years ago, Christianity dominated the world. And they believed even if you weren't a real, like, died-in-the-wool Christian, you really were regenerate, you believed that God was in control of the universe and that things, if the fearful things, he, he stops the things that go bump in the night. 
you know you, you knew your dad was there so that when you wake up and have that nightmare you could comfort you could be comforted that daddy's here but in our modern age we've banished the lord daddy's not here you're home alone in this world and so fear dominates us and so there's these two things the the categories i want to break them down into are two things there's a there's a sinful fear and that's all fear associated with sin fear caused by sin fear as a sin so you're so i'm fearing something that i shouldn't be fearing i should be fearing the lord instead and i'm fearing this thing that's sinful fear fear that results in sin i'm afraid so i sin those things those are fearful those are sinful aspects of fear fearful uh, sinful uh, sinful fear, what I'll call sinful fear. But then there's a right fear. And this right fear is the fear which God himself delights in. Jonathan Edwards describes the Trinity as this perpetual, trembling delight of the Lord in the Lord by the Lord. So the Lord trembling to delight in himself. So the Father is trembling with delight in the Son. The Son is trembling with delight in the, in the Father. And that trembling delight that passes between them is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of God is the, in the, 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 he is the fear of the Lord personified in a, in a sense. And so this Fear, this delight is the this this trembling delight is what flows between the persons of the Trinity, and that is the right kind of fear that He wants to bring us into, and give us as a gift in Himself. So one great example of this is Exodus nineteen and twenty. Exodus nineteen and twenty sets these two fears, sinful fear and right fear, side by side, inviting comparison. So let's take a look at that real quick. I'm just going to pick out some places and kind of recount a little bit of how it flows together. And hopefully we can see how this works. So Yahweh brings Israel out of Egypt to the foot of Mount Sinai. And the Israelites agree to, to do everything. They say, we'll do everything you, you tell us to do. They agree to obey every command that Yahweh gives to them. And, that in, and then the Lord says, all right, if you agree to that, then I will make you my own special possession, my own holy people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart unto me. And then for three days, they, he brings them to Sinai, they make this agreement, and for three days he says, nobody touches the mountain. I'm In three days, I'm touching down on top of the mountain. My manifest presence is going to be unveiled on the top of this mountain, and it's going to be such holiness is going to radiate out, out from it that it will kill anybody that comes near it. So for three days, I need everybody to not touch the mountain, and we're going to need to set up barriers around the mountain. Don't get near it. Now, you would think that, these, that the precautions of putting up barriers, why would you need that? Why would you need uh, to be warned to stay away from a mountain that's essentially going to be, look like a volcano going off. It's going to have fire and tornado and smoke at the top of it. It's going to look like, it's a, it's going to look like an erupting volcano that, that combined with a whirlwind and a tornado on top and swirling with hurricane force winds and smoke. Who's going to be, who needs to be told, stay back from that? <laughs> But there's, there's apparently something about God's glory that he's going to reveal on top of this mountain that he knows there are going to be people who are going to be drawn into it and they're going to come 
into it before the time is right. Because he says to them this, he says, you need to stay back for three days. But then in verse 13, in chapter 19, verse 13, he says, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, the people, they shall come up to the mountain. In ESV, it says come up to the mountain, 1913. But in the Hebrew, it's very clear. It's the same phrasing that is used to describe when Moses comes up onto the mountain. So what the Lord is saying is, I'm gonna, the long trumpet blast is going to come, and that's going to be the summons for the people to then come up onto the mountain into my presence. I'm going to, the problem is, they can't come until I summon them. So I'm going to open up the doors, and they're going to be able to come up onto the mountain and, and when I summon them, but not before. They're coming at my bidding, not waltzing into my presence whenever they want. So uh, what's happening is, Yahweh's going to summon them up the mountain. They, they have to wait for the summons. But then on the morning of the third day, when Yahweh descends and the trumpet starts to blare, suddenly the people aren't so keen on the idea of going up. They're terrified. They're seeing the volcano. They're seeing the eruption. They're seeing the swirling fire and smoke. And they're hearing this blaring trumpet blasts from the mountain announcing the descent of Yahweh, God of creation, onto, this top, onto the top of this mountain. And, of course, they're terrified. Now they're saying, if we take one step toward that mountain, we are dead. But what are they doing? They're not obeying everything God told them to obey because he said, when the trumpet blasts, come up onto the mountain. So then it says in verse 19, as the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And finally... Seeing that the people aren't obeying all that he has commanded by answering the call, Yahweh calls Moses to come up alone. He says, fine, 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 fine. Shut the trumpets off. Everybody cancel. Calm down. Moses, get up here real quick. Moses then turns and goes up the mountain, and he no sooner gets to the top of the mountain that the Lord says, all right, now what I need you to do is I'll tell the people to stay back. The window of opportunity is closed. Um, uh, he goes up. To, he gets up only to be told to go back and tell them that hey, the window is opportunity to close. You know, now now you need to stay back. Um, then, so while so then Moses goes back down the mountain, and while he's explaining that they can't go up the mountain because they wouldn't obey God's simple command and they wouldn't trust. They couldn't trust him to preserve them through death. They couldn't trust him to preserve them through the fire that he was asking them to pass through. Yahweh Himself speaks the law from the mountain. That's when he announces the Ten Commandments. And that's when the people of Israel really get scared. They were scared when the mountain was on fire. They were scared when the mountain was covered with smoke. They were scared when they heard the trumpets. They were scared when they heard the voice like thunder calling Moses up to the top. But now their terror has reached a fever pitch because of what? Because the Lord announces his Ten Commands. He says, this is who I am morally. You see who I am in my magnificent glory, let me tell you about my moral standards. And then they go, we can't even listen. We can't listen to this anymore, Moses. I can't hear another word. I'm shutting my ears. You go up and you handle this. You talk to him for us. You get the word from him and bring it back down to us. We can't handle it. So, the, so, so Moses turns to them in verse 20 and he says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Do not fear. Because Yahweh, your God, is testing you. And this is it. This is crazy. Yahweh, don't fear, for Yahweh, your God, is testing you to see if you are going to fear him. He's testing you to see if you're going to... Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He's testing you to see whether you're going to be afraid. 
Do you see the, Do you see what's going on here? He's saying there's two different kinds of fear. There's the sinful fear. There's the right fear. Don't have this sinful fear. Don't be afraid that he. Don't be afraid in such a way that you can't trust him. But trust him in your fear. Tremble and rejoice in him. He's testing you to see whether you're going to have that right kind of fear. Don't have the sinful fear. He's testing you to see whether you're going to have that. Whether you're going to obey him and walk into the flames when he summons you to. But yes, I'm going to go up and I'm going to intercede for you. Trust y'all. Trust him that he's not trying to trick you. You have to trust him. And you have to let the fear of him become your delight. But they don't listen to Moses. And so Moses goes back up to represent them before the Lord. And the Lord makes that compromise. Remember, we talked last week about God in his anger. His angry response to Moses was what? Provide a substitute. Provide an intermediary. And then Moses becomes an intermediary later on for Israel in the last part of this um, scenario once they worship the, uh, the golden calf. So Moses goes up the mountain, goes back and intercedes for them. And what does Moses go up to do? He's going to receive the tabernacle and instructions for the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? It's a portable Eden. It's a portable Eden. You can carry Eden around with you and return to the presence of God. And... Uh, and it is this living parable of how God is going to make that possible. How could it be possible that that holy God on top of that mountain, how can I walk through that fire and not die? How can I walk into his presence and not die? How can I coexist in that God's holiness and not be destroyed? Well, Moses goes up to get the tabernacle, which paints the picture of what the answer is going to be. It has to happen through sacrifice and atonement and intercession of a priest who's going to stand in the gap for us and and give his life for us. So th while they're up there, they get this sense Moses is dead 40 days. While Moses is basically getting the gospel answer to their fear of the law, they go, you know what? You know what we really need? We need a God we can control, which is what idolatry is all about. It's about making a God you can control. So they say, Aaron, make us a God we can control. And that's what they do. And of course, the Lord's anger is flared up. Intercession needs to take place, and they're delivered through that moment of intercession. But what does this have to do with the fear? When Moses first said to them in chapter 19, he's going to summon you up on the mountain, he said he's going to test you to see whether you will fear him, to make sure that you will obey him. He's going to put his fear in you so that you will obey him. Now, what would have happened if they'd have gone up the mountain, if they would have obeyed and gone up the mountain? What would have happened was the perfection of fear. And they wouldn't have sinned. They wouldn't have committed that idolatry. They wouldn't have made a golden calf. They would have seen the God who was beyond their control much closer up, and they would have trembled and rejoiced. And they would have said, yes, we can trust this uncontrollable God to find a way to deal with our sin and not destroy us, to give us life instead of destruction in his presence. We can trust this God. And because this is what they would have seen. The third point, how do we cultivate the right fear? How do we handle our fear, and how do we cultivate this right fear? So... What we need is a new nature. <laughs> we need a new nature that can live in the presence of God and thrive on his holiness instead of be destroyed by it. And 
How does God give us that new nature? Jeremiah 32, 38 through 41 uh, and 33, 8 through 9 tell us about the new covenant. Tell us a couple of things about the new covenant that later comes in Jesus. So he says this, Jeremiah 32, 38. And they shall be my people. Talking about when the people go into exile, then they're going to return. I'm going to bring them back and they shall be my people. And I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. His goal in the new covenant is fear. We're new covenant people. His goal is fear. They will fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. If the fear of me is in their hearts, they won't turn from me. I'll do good to them and that will make them fear me. What is that? I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And then a chapter later, he's continuing talking about the old covenant, the new covenant. And he says, how am I going to do this? How am I going to put this fear of me in their hearts? How am I going to give them these new hearts? I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. I will forgive all their sin and that will make them fear me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear... All the nations will hear of all the good that I do for them and they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. The forgiveness that God provides is a fearful forgiveness. Why? Because he's not just a volcano. He's not just... Uh, he's, a, he's a gentle volcano. He's not just a hurricane. He's a humble hurricane. He's not just an earthquake. He's a compassionate earthquake. He's not just something beyond our control. He is someone beyond our control. And he is so determined to show that, that we are not in control that he says, if you try to rebel against me, you try to run from me, you sin against me and earn death and destruction, you know what I'm going to do? I, you, you will tremble at the things I will do to win you back. You will tremble with fear at the lengths I will go to to forgive your sin. Tremble and rejoice. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4 says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you kept track of my sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you shall be feared. And we know what Isaiah didn't know, what Jeremiah didn't know, what the psalmist didn't know. We know that that forgiveness came, the fearfulness of this forgiveness is that it came at the cost of the life of the Son of God. Jesus Christ says, I am so committed to your good. I am so committed to your prosperity. I am so committed to being with you and to reconnecting you to life and giving you eternal life that I will die. I will bear your sin. I'll take it all. And you can't stop me. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't control me. My forgiveness, you can't control my forgiveness. 
I will hand myself over to you and let you slaughter me to forgive you of your sin. And there's not a thing you can do about it. So what should you do in response to that kind of uncontrollable love? What do you do in response to that uncontrollable God? If fear is not the right response to that, if trembling delight is not the right response to that, I don't know what is. So this is the perfection of the fear of the Lord. With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. So here's my final word about emotions. All the other emotions, everything in our emotional palate is controlled by this one thing, by the fear of the Lord. Rejoicing and trembling in his presence, being captivated with him always, letting him be the gravitational center of your life in fear and trembling. You tremble at him and nothing else is the way you banish all other fears. So tremble and fear and rejoice for all the good that he is determined to do for you. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these students. Thank you again uh, for an opportunity to share. I pray that you will bless them, that you will strengthen them, that you will cause the light of your face to shine upon them, and that they would tremble with joy and tremble with delight and delight to fear you, uh, that you would fill them with the spirit of the fear of the Lord, that they might uh, be completed in the perfection of fear. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, who died to pay the penalty for our sin, this fearful forgiveness that you have wrought. Through him, I pray, the one who lives and reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. Thank you, everyone. It's been a great summer. I've really appreciated it. hope everybody has a great uh, return to school. Text me, email me. Mark's got my number and stuff. Uh, give me a call if any, if any of you need anything. I'm here for you. Thanks, guys.